gamers changing things. The fallout in Washington after one of the biggest intelligence leaks in years. Word on the street. The papers that provide news stories from the ground up. And making up is hard to do. But Donald Trump is back on Fox News. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. The details are still emerging, and there's probably more to come. But Washington is dealing with what looks like the biggest U.S. intelligence leak in a decade. Among the secrets already revealed, the U.S. has been spying on its allies, Israel and South Korea included. It's even had Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky under surveillance. We've also learned that Ukraine is running out of anti-aircraft missiles, that American spies have penetrated Russian defense and intelligence operations. This story was broken by The New York Times, but first appeared online in places that no one goes looking for news. Messaging platforms used by military gamers who, it turns out, are also interested in the real world. Washington is now in diplomatic damage control mode, trying to manage the coverage of a story that shows no sign of going away anytime soon. The latest U.S. intelligence leaks were found floating in some of the most unlikely corners of the Internet. An apparent trove of intelligence documents leaked onto social media sites. Over the, last the path years. those documents took to come to light in a story eventually broken by the New York Times is like nothing the world of espionage has ever seen. The paper called the leaks a significant breach of American intelligence, the biggest in a decade. The Pentagon now investigating what could be one of the most dangerous intelligence breaches in decades. The disclosures touch on many geopolitical issues, Ukraine among them. In most cases, the information does not amount to breaking news. What makes them newsworthy is the detail they provide. But look, these documents contain incredibly sensitive information about Ukrainian troop movements, strengths and weaknesses. These leaked documents don't tell us anything fundamental that most observers didn't know already. But what they do is they give us much, much more detail about U.S. involvement in the war uh, and uh, about U.S. assessments of the war and of the Ukrainian forces. We are looking at a very comprehensive assessment of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, detailed assessment of capacities, concrete figures, data that was collected obviously from a number of sources all across Russian uh, intelligence uh, services, Russia's military. So it illustrates the amount of U.S. penetration uh, deep into the Russian state and that they actually see pretty much everything that's happening on the Russian side. One of the things that happened when we learned about the leaks um, was to try and figure out where they actually came from. And one of the last places we thought they would be was a gaming server used by people who are in their early 20s, teenagers talking about games and strategies. So it's a very different uh, feel and a very different type of leak from what we've seen in decades past. That is what set this story apart, where the leaked intelligence first showed up and the timeline. Ten documents, some marked top secret, appeared online more than a month ago, on March 4th, on Discord, messaging platforms popular with military gamers. 
Then that information migrated to 4chan, the image board favored by the alt-right movement in the US. Unlike previous data leaks, the kind WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden let loose, no documents were provided, just photographs of individual files. Once those documents found their way to Telegram, a messaging app popular with Russians, the New York Times latched onto the story, moving it into the mainstream on the 6th of April. All kinds of theories on the source of the leaks then made the rounds, with open source investigative platforms like Bellingcat getting involved. It suggests that there are, you know, very fundamental flaws in these American systems, that they are much more vulnerable than we ever thought. And if that's true of America, no doubt it is true of a great many other countries around the world as well. As far as Russia is concerned, of course, the Russian uh, media is delighted about anything that embarrasses the United States. If we look at um, the material of the leaks, the fact that they seem to be photographs of printed documents, then it points to some kind of internal involvement. So the Pentagon is going to have to carry out damage control and make sure that they can contain these leaks and prevent any further classified information from being made publicly available. If we're looking at uh, some of other big leaks, stuff related to the WikiLeaks, they, have an, they had a certain agenda, they wanted journalists to spread the information. Here we have no understanding how the information traveled from one point to another you do not understand what the particular agenda is. It took a week, but on April 13th, the Pentagon arrested the alleged culprit, a member of the U.S. Army's Reserve Forces who was based in Massachusetts. That's where an FBI tactical team took 21-year-old Airman First Class Jack Teixeira into custody this afternoon. A 21-year-old who reportedly got into arguments with other military gamers and then posted the documents as evidence of his qualifications. Although his motivation appears to be more personal and ego-based than ideological, what he is accused of revealing is no less impactful. That the US has been spying on its allies again, including Israel and South Korea. That Russian intelligence services cannot hide their secrets from American spies. And that Ukraine will run out of anti-aircraft missiles next month, which is good news for Russian pilots. Russian news outlets, meanwhile, have struggled to tell this story, knowing that the Kremlin is keeping a close eye on them. In общем, пришли к выводу, если я правильно помню, Вань, что это безусловно провокация, но скорее всего дезинформация. Именно так. So we're seeing a, a multitude of narratives within the Russian media. On some of the talk shows, it sort of says, "Look, the U.S. can't even keep it secret." Поэтому для наших спецслужб это хороший подарок. Every now and then you'll get a former Russian officials have come on talk shows and said, look, these documents really show how the American spy uh, community has been able to get inside our military and our spy agencies. These documents show such a degree of American intelligence They've been shut down pretty quickly. This particular revelation that Ukraine's air defense missile system is rapidly depleting will, will be particularly welcomed in Moscow. 
они будут... Ракеты закончатся, люди у них закончатся, танки у них... However, one could also argue that this might be possibly positive for Ukraine because it will highlight the fact that Ukraine needs desperately more weapons from the West and it's already been pushing for that. So we might see a new source of consensus amongst um, Ukraine's allies to, to give further uh, weapons. Americans hawkish over the war in Ukraine will be glad to hear that. As for the Pentagon's own security issues, this morning, there are growing concerns over the security of the United States' defense secrets. U.S. news outlets have been working their way through the story, despite being warned off it initially by the White House's national security team. It has no business, if you don't mind me saying, uh, on the pages of, uh, of uh, front pages of, of newspapers or on television. The irony is that while the Biden administration reflexively refused to confirm the leaks were legitimate, its desperation to keep the reporting of the story contained how concerned are you about this leak amounted to a de facto admission that the material journalists were reporting on was real it is impossible to contain it properly it's it's already out there so what you can do is reassure your allies that all the necessary measures to prevent that from ever happening again will take place possibly addressing some of the issues raised from those documents. But this is about reputation, this is about trust, and this is about the uh, United States being able to explain how it happened in the first place. As to the revelation of US spying on allies, there will be a temporary storm over this, and then it will be deliberately and carefully forgotten. Undoubtedly, this is a serious embarrassment for the United States. Um, it also very strongly reinforces the Kremlin's line that Russia is not at war only with Ukraine, but is essentially at war with the whole of the West and NATO. And then obviously this makes the Russian failures much less embarrassing. And whether the reservist accused of leaking the American intel meant it or not, that is the major takeaway from this story less of a revelation than a confirmation of what many have suspected since the first Russian soldier crossed the border into Ukraine. That more than 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union and the alleged end of the Cold War, that Moscow is up against much more than Kiev. That Washington is playing a far bigger part in this conflict, this proxy war, than the White House has been willing to admit. Turning to a leak of a different kind now, over at Fox News, where a lawsuit and a bunch of private text messages made public turned an interview with former President Donald Trump into an awkward affair. Flo Phillips is here with more. Richard, Fox News host Tucker Carlson conducted the interview this past Tuesday, Trump's first national media appearance since becoming the only U.S. president charged with a crime. There was what Carlson said. For a man who is caricatured as an extremist, we think you'll find what he has to say moderate, sensible, and wise. But then there was also what Carlson didn't say. A few softball questions aside, he allowed Trump to speak unchallenged for an hour on everything from foreign policy, the legal case against him, as well as what Trump calls the gravest threat to the planet. We have the biggest problem we have in the whole world. It's not global warming, it's nuclear warming. Carlson and the former president have some making up to do. 
Last month, the emergence of a bundle of internal comms at Fox News, revealed as part of a $1.6 billion lawsuit brought against the network by Dominion Voting Systems, exposed Carlson's true feelings about Trump. While the Fox News host has openly supported Trump on air, knowingly endorsing false claims of election fraud, off the air, in private messages to colleagues, Carlson said he hated Trump passionately, calling him a disaster a demonic force. But Trump's base is important for Fox's ratings. So it was in the interest of Carlson and the network to make nice. Will Fox viewers ever hear what Carlson really thinks of Trump? They might well. The Dominion lawsuit is set to get underway next week, and Carlson is expected to testify under oath. Misleading viewers is one thing. Lying to a judge and a jury is quite another. That's called perjury, and you can go to jail for it. Thanks, Law. If you live in a city, chances are you have bought a newspaper from someone experiencing homelessness. Street papers are now part of the media landscape in more than 100 cities in 35 countries. They provide the people who sell them with a regular income and the audiences that read them with in-depth coverage of some complex issues surrounding homelessness that they might struggle to find elsewhere. Street Roots is one of those publications. It's based in Portland, Oregon. The paper uses journalism to challenge a commonly held belief that being homeless is a personal rather than systemic failing. It does so by giving a voice to those at the heart of this story, whose perspectives often go unheard, the people on the streets. The Listening Post's Johanna Husnow on Street Roots and the papers out to change how the public perceives homelessness and how politicians respond to it. Here I am, Dumpster D, live in Portland, Oregon. And we are talking about, whoops, the Street Roots paper, <laughs> which I just dropped. <laughs> Ta-da! I came here from a flood from Houston. Lost my apartment, me and my sister both. So we came here, I heard about Street Roots because we were outside in the cold. All the shelters were full, but they helped me to bring these papers out so that I could make money I've been a vendor for about a year and a half now. I've considered selling it before, but I didn't think, you know, I, I'm very good at like rejection. <laughs> but I had no other source of income once the, uh, once the pandemic hit. So I just started selling the paper and I found I actually enjoy it. Dumpstady and Karen sell the Street Roots newspaper in the city of Portland in Oregon. One of 28 so-called street papers in the United States. Street Roots is a publication about, and in part by, current and former homeless or unhoused individuals, and it aims to change the face and reputation of homelessness in the city. Street Roots has been around for almost 25 years, and we uh, focus on investigative journalism, which is a real investment for papers to make, but we believe it's very important because if we're trying to take on systems that are failing people, we need to go deeper. Street papers are really important at creating relationships between housed and unhoused people. Folks start to build a kind of knowledge about each other that then can transfer into this larger understanding of the predicament in our cities. By providing investigative journalism, 
uh, coupled with uh, voices of people with lived experience and unique perspectives from the streets, we're able to offer a really unique snapshot of, of homelessness and housing, but also a lot of the issues that intersect with those realities. What sets street papers apart is that they offer a means of income to vendors who would otherwise have to ask strangers for money. But they also give unhoused people a space where their voices are actually heard. Street Roots Newsroom, like many other street papers, is mostly made up of professional journalists. But many of their 200 sellers also frequently contribute content, providing perspectives that regular reporters cannot. Street Roots has had this tagline for those who cannot afford free speech for our entire existence. And that really gets at the fact that people in poverty do not have a large enough voice in our society, in our, in our policy making that actually impacts their lives. We actually run a little journalism school for people on the streets and we really work hard to bring people across housing status and that includes in our in our newsroom. I've been um, had a lot of problems difficulties with addiction like 35 years uh, deep deep addiction and so I like to write about what I see as um, an area that needs improvement in the community right like the fentanyl epidemic the process of applying for affordable housing how does that work so I I have experience in all that area, so I just write about something that I see that needs improved. Some of the main big papers here in the U.S., the New York Times or the L.A. Times, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, a lot of these newsrooms rely on the voices of officials when covering the issue. Maybe they'll get one line from an advocate. Many of the articles in these street papers provide op-eds, first-hand experiences, people experiencing the shelter, the criminal legal system, and giving folks who have no clue of how people are experiencing these systems a first-hand outlook. By putting out the word on the street, these papers help make up for some of the shortcomings of the mainstream media on issues of inequality. Stereotypes relating to addiction, mental health, a lack of context on the systemic failures, all contribute to the impression so many people have that when it comes to unhoused people, they only have themselves to blame. There's countless ways into how people can ultimately become homeless. We cover indigenous affairs, we cover racism, or just all kinds of social inequities that take place. And I think if people gain a better understanding of how all these things tie in, then you can better understand how it is that systems have failed people rather than people on the streets have failed themselves. I had a poem in the last week's paper that were not stereotypes, cliches, or caricatures. And if you talk to us, you'll find that out. And there's people that they see the, the problems with homelessness as far as like garbage on the streets and everything. I just tell them, you talk to me, you can see, you know, I'm not one of the people that contribute any of that. I don't throw dirty needles on the street. <laughs> I think sometimes where uh, the, the media gets it wrong is they're covering the play-by-play -play of the crisis that's unfolding on the streets without providing any historical context of why uh, there are so many people experiencing homelessness in the United States and also what ways that we can be able uh, to solve the crisis. The second aspect that the mainstream media consistently get wrong is the level of social welfare support that is provided. 
There's a widespread belief that the issue isn't that the state is not providing help and care, but that individuals are choosing to resist it. So our main story this week is about a bill going through the state legislature right now. Street papers are not just out to change perceptions, but also the politics around homelessness. In 2019, Street Roots advocated for a rethink of Portland's public safety policies, tapping into their vendors' knowledge to change how police respond to emergency calls involving houseless people. Now, when a non-criminal incident is reported, health and social workers, rather than police, get sent out, saving the council millions in police resources and those involved from needless arrest. Locally, for the last five years, more, over 50% of all the arrests in Portland have been of unhoused people. That's just completely a system out of whack. And a lot of the arrests are about crimes of homelessness, right? Being trespassing, being in public spaces, doing the daily things of, of survival in public spaces. So we really took that knowledge and our newspaper did a rolled out a special edition where we put our minds to a brand new system. And we fought um, you know, very hard to get this to be a city system, and we succeeded. The Portland Street response, that, that's a, a great example of where street papers were able uh, to marry journalism and uh, their advocacy to be able to create uh, systemic change uh, in the community. And there are countless examples of how street papers have played a role in helping uh, save people's housing from budget cuts or how they're helping uh, drive uh, education around particular uh, policies that affect the poor. I speak with people in City Hall. I speak with service providers. Uh, they read these articles, they read these issues, but also being able to post these stories um, on places like Twitter or Facebook has drawn attention to mainstream journalists who will then contact the group and cover the story and has led to what they believe uh, is an expansion of their influence. It's given them a huge edge as an advocacy outlet. The line between journalism and activism, between reporting on unhoused people and advocating for them, can get blurry. When we put that to street roots, the executive director told us that there is a separation between their editorial and advocacy, and that every news organization has an agenda. Street papers are on a mission to put a roof over people's head, which, as far as agendas go, isn't too bad. We often get a lot of vendors who have joined street roots unhoused and we get to see them ultimately become housed and it's nothing like seeing the joy of them being able to relish in that moment of bringing their house keys to the street roots office to let us know hey i no longer have to stay on the streets basically this is the best thing that ever happened to me it got me in my home i've been there five years and i've been doing the papers five years Good neighbor because the customers still want me to do it I love the customers and they like us. And finally, Dumpster D, the street paper vendor we heard from, is a guy with a big personality. When he's not selling papers, Mr. D doubles as a poet. He read us one of his works. It's a message for writers dealing with the curse of the creative mind, known as writer's block. We'll leave you with Writer's Block Blues. It's for all you would-be wordsmiths with your focus shattered, wondering if your voice even matters. And we'll see you next time 
here at the Listening Post. Oh, the tyranny of the blank page. It drives writers to the bottle and fills us full of impotent rage. There are no new ideas under the sun. What you choose to write about is stale and obsolete before you have even begun. Your self-absorbed rantings will reach an audience of no one. The page would just as soon stay white as driven snow, impervious to your blatherings and what you think you know. Deep original thoughts ricochet around my cranium, yet they somehow escape out my ears before I have a chance to entertain them. Storylines show up before I can grab a pin, they quickly exit stage left, leaving me with nada again. I suppose I could resort to plagiarism to claim as my own what flowed from a much better writer's pen. Nah, just who am I trying to fool here? That I'm a never-has-been talent-like hat. It's perfectly clear. Time to take my pretentious literary illusions and sweep them under the rug. What a relief. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs>